Good morning, church. It's good to see you. Uh, I see we have a few uh, uh, new people here. Every Sunday we have new people, and, and uh, if you are new, my name is Matt Ortiz, and uh, I would love to meet you after the service. If you can stick around, please introduce yourself to me. And, and just to bring you up to speed on, on what's going on, we're in a series that's focusing on the life of David, a series called In Search of a King. And uh, we're looking at, at passages from 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel and uh, the book of Psalms. And in the passage that, that was read this morning, David is in a cave. Now, this is absolutely critical to keep in mind as we work through this. Because there is this misconception that is prevalent. That the spiritual life is lived on mountaintops. It is not lived on mountaintops alone. There are also caves. The times in our lives when we bottom out. Caves are dark, they're damp, and they are desperately lonely. But I'll tell you this. They are also places and times where God does some of his most important work. They are times when God draws us to himself. There are times when God uh, develops within us the character that we need to prepare for the calling that he has placed in, in our lives, uh, a calling uh, for a life that, 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 that includes things that he has prepared for us to do. We see this in the life of David. And so our plan for this morning is to first look at, at, at David's experience in this cave, and then what we want to do for the last half is, is ask, what is it that we learn about Jesus and the gospel from this story? So first, if you're taking notes, um, there's an outline in your bulletin. We're going to go ahead and look at the story and what we learn about David. <clears throat> first of all, we learn uh, that these cave experiences often include three phases. Disorientation, solitude, and a new beginning. And so let's look at those. First, disorientation. Disorientation happens when the things that you lean on suddenly disappear. David is a fugitive on, on the run from a madman named King Saul. And in the process, David loses absolutely everything. He had, he had a great job, and he lost it. It was a place of prestige and power, a seat at the king's table, gone. He had a wife, and he lost her. He had a trusted mentor, and he lost him. He had his best, his closest, his dearest friend, and lost him. And then, finally, he had his personal dignity, and he loses his personal dignity. I mean, absolutely, we see David lose absolutely everything. And in a moment of weakness, David takes refuge in, in enemy territory. He takes refuge among the enemies of, of God and the enemies of God's people in Gath. It's the headquarters of the Philistines. And when he shows up, he is recognized, captured, and taken to the king of Gath. So here's David surrounded now by thousands of people who know that David is responsible for the death of thousands of their people, and he knows that this is a mistake. I should not have come to this place. 
And so what does David do? Out of total desperation, he pretends to be insane. He foams at, at the mouth. I mean, spit runs into his beard and he scribbles on the wall. And the king of Gath said to his men, look at this guy. He's insane. Get him out of here. I am surrounded by enough guys like this already. He says that. And so they release David. And he escapes from Gath. He escapes from these thousands of people who want him dead. And he runs to Adullam and slides into a cave. Now, look, there are only two verses about this, but it's one of the lowest points in David's life. So we can't just, you know, read it and then move on. We need to spend some time here because it is times like these that are, that are a significant part of our lives, a significant part of everyone's life. Now, the, the walk, the 10-mile walk, took about two to, to three hours. And I can't help but, you know, imagine that it's, it's gray and drizzling as, as David walks out of Gath. And then when he gets to this large, dark cave, he just kind of disappears into its darkness like an animal. And this cave was dreary and dark and damp. And he's shaken, mistaken, forsaken. Total disorientation. In times like these, you begin to question even just the basics of life. A cave represents those times in our lives when we bottom out, when there's a, a sudden crisis and our lives get flipped just totally upside down and the people and the things that, that we had, had leaned on for our stability, that we leaned on for our self-worth, that we leaned on for our emotional support can somehow suddenly get snatched away or just slip through our fingers to evaporate. And then a sense of inadequacy or failure creeps in. And the demands of life just overwhelm you and your, and your purpose and, and your values just begin to blur. And you want to run away. Slide into a cave, curl up, and never come out. You ever been there? If you haven't, it's just a matter of time. And we can't live in total denial of that. No one gets a free pass on suffering. It, helps, it hits everybody. And here's the deal. When that happens, and it will happen, probably more than once, when that happens, you find yourself become, becoming open to change. Right? When you realize that the old things no longer hold you up, when, the, when these other things no, no longer keep you going, when an unrest creeps in and, and deep down you realize that you cannot keep going on like this. It's not working. Something's got to change. When you get there and you run out of your own options, that is when personal renewal and redemption begins. God prepares you for spiritual growth. And that's what happened to David. 
after losing absolutely everything and experiencing total disorientation, he entered into a second phase of the cave experience, the stage of solitude. You know what's been most exciting for me as I prepare uh, for messages and a part of this series is, is seeing that, that we not only have the historical facts, the historical account of David's life, we can also read about how he felt about it all in the Psalms, right? And David wrote Psalm 142 about this experience in this cave. And it was an emotional time, and so the psalm is an emotional psalm. But it's also enlightening for those of us who find ourselves in one of life's caves. Check out three things that David does during the solitude in his cave. First of all, he's completely, totally, brutally honest about his hurt. Listen to David in verse 3. He says, My spirit faints within me. Where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. You ever feel like that? That's the way that David felt. And it's okay to, to feel like that. I mean, David, he was the mightiest warrior who ever walked the planet, and he is aggressively honest about his hurt. So just say it. Just admit it. Don't fear your brokenness. Don't hide your hurt with anger. Don't cover up your failures. Be brutally honest. And then second, you see David turns to God for help. Now, don't miss this, all right? Here's David. He has no security, no food, uh, uh, no one to listen, no promise to cling to. He was in a cave alone from everyone and everything. And so here's what he did, verse 1. He says, with my voice, I cry out to the Lord. And what's interesting about this is that, is that the word cry is the most frequently used word for prayer in the Old Testament. And he says, I cry out to the Lord with my voice. I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell him my trouble before him. And then verse 5, I cry to you, O Lord. The caves help us with that. They, they press us into God when we've exhausted all our other options that we think will help. So when you're in a cave and you're out of options, be honest about your hurt, turn to God for help, and then third, and then third, anticipate God's, anticipate his intervention. Anticipate it. David does this in verse 7 of the psalm. He says, he's praying, he's crying out to the Lord, and he says, bring me out of prison that I may give thanks to your name. The righteous will surround me for you will deal bountifully with me. Now, when the world surrounds you, the world says, you're a loser. It's your fault. You screwed up everything. You are hopeless. You are beyond redemption. And God says, no, that does not define you. You are in a cave right now, and now it is time for a new direction in your life. Are you ready? David was alone, depressed, 
away from everything and everyone. For all he knew, no one even knew he was there. No one knew where he was. But God did. And God was with him in that cave. God never left him. God always walked with him. And now watch what God does as he moves David into phase three, which is a new beginning and a new new direction. Back to 2 Samuel verse 1. When his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. You know, when, if you remember from, from earlier in the series, I mean, there was a time where his family couldn't have cared less, right? When, when the prophet Samuel was sent by God to anoint the, king, uh, the new king, David's father did not even consider David to be a king material. And, and the prophet Samuel asked him, hey, are, are, are these all of your sons? And Jesse said, uh, yeah, I mean, we have one more. He's like the runt of the litter and he's out taking care of the sheep. You don't want him, do you? Samuel said, bring him in. And then when, when David prepared to battle Goliath, his older brother rebuked him and said, you're just a conceited little brat that's looking for attention. But now David is totally broken. And here comes his family. Maybe they heard Saul was out to kill David and, and figured that, that Saul would come looking for him back at the ranch, so they fled out of fear. You know, maybe they, they, they come to the, the cave just totally disgusted with David for getting everyone into this mess. Either way, the cave begins to expand. Now, I don't know about you, but when I am in a cave, I don't want to talk to anyone. I don't want to see anyone. Anyone else here like that? David might not have wanted his family around, but God brought them anyway, and they crawled into the cave with him. Have you ever prayed? Have you ever cried out to God, and then when God answered, you said, "Uh, God, that's not really what I had in mind. David prayed, he prayed, the righteous surround me. Then look at verse 2. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. (laughs) That's not what I meant. In distress, they have this strong inner unrest and great external pressure in debt. No one here knows anything about debt and the pressures of debt, right? No, of course not. We'll move on. Bitter in soul. They have grievances and gripes. Not what David had in mind. I have enough problems as it is. I don't need these people showing up with bitter in soul, in distress. David's in a cave. He feels worthless, useless, mistreated, hopeless. Then his family shows up who are not very happy with him. And then and then and then it says 400 miserable, 400 other miserable people show up and climb into the cave with him. And chapter 23, a little later, tells us 
200 more winners join them. It is bad enough to be in a cave alone like a miserable animal, but then 600 more miserable animals crawl in there with you? I mean, imagine 600 despondent people in a cave with no plumbing, no shower, no toilet, no fan. Pretty gross place. But it was also a place of ministry. It was a place of training. It was a place of renewal. Verse 2 goes on to say, and he became commander over them. So do you see what's going on here? Why are all of these people who are, surrounded by, who are surrounding David, gathering to David, why are these people in distress? Why are they in debt? Why are they discontented? It's because the wrong king is on the throne. And because they knew that things were not the way they were supposed to be. The land was aching. Saul had overtaxed the people and and wasn't protecting Israel from their enemies. He was too busy chasing uh, David. The Philistines, the Amalekites were oppressing the people of Israel. The people were, were needy. They were tormented. Everything was falling apart. They were suffering and they couldn't handle it anymore. And so they fled their homes, they left the lives they had, and they came to the cave because the wrong king was on the throne, and they believed that David was the true king. And there in the cave, God gave David a ministry. David becomes king of the cavemen. A guerrilla band protecting the needy and the afflicted, uh, defending Israel against the Amalekites and, and the Philistines. David becomes their commander. Now, now David is, is a cultured guy. What we read about him, he's, he's a cultured guy. He wrote poetry and he was a musician. He played a harp and he's working with a group of just average dudes, uh, uncultured dudes like me, right? David teaches them to sing. He writes songs for them. God, through David, transforms this ragtag group into the mighty men of David. They become heroic men of battle, mighty with the bow, mighty with the sword, mighty with the spear. David trains them, and he disciplines them, and he hones their fighting skills and molds their character until, as one author put it, he had formed the nucleus of the greatest army the Israelites ever had. They were destined to win the greatest victories that the people of God ever enjoyed in all their history. And when David eventually takes his throne, they become his cabinet, his chiefs of staff, and rule the kingdom with him. Listen to me. God is at work in our caves, okay? I remember growing up, um, my dad uh, would read to us after dinner. He'd read a, a, a portion of, of scripture and then another book 
something by Charles Dickens or maybe a biography or something like that. And I remember him reading about a woman named Corrie Ten Boom. Now, how many here in this room have heard of Corrie Ten Boom? All right, so a few of you. That's good. Well, she experienced the cave in a Nazi concentration camp. And she would illustrate how God works through those things by, by holding up a, a piece of material full of, of knotted threads that were, that were frayed and they just looked like a, a horrible mess, one ugly mistake after another. But then when she turns the material around, she reveals a, a beautifully embroidered crown woven with gold and silver thread. And she explains... How God is weaving us and preparing us to be beautiful in the likeness of Christ. So when you're in a cave and, and you think, you know what, this is a mistake. I mean, where in the world is God when you really need him? I'm ruined. It's over. Can, can we really believe that God is with us in the cave and weaving something beautiful? Can, can we know for sure that what is true of David can be true of us? The answer is yes. It is absolutely yes. You can know. But not if we just look to someone like David as our example. Not, not if that's all we have. It's got to be so much more than that. It only happens if we look to the one to whom David is pointing. Remember, David does not primarily teach us about us. He teaches us about Jesus. David is not just an example of someone who trusts in the Lord in a time of desperate need. He first and foremost points us to the Lord who comes to us in our time of desperate need. So the key question then is this. What do we learn about Jesus in the gospel from this story? When we ask that question, we learn three things. First, we see that Jesus endured our cave to lead us out. Why did Jesus come to us? Jesus came to us because the wrong king is on the throne. And as a result, everything is falling apart. People are needy, oppressed, and dying. But God, in his mercy, sends another king, a king after his own heart. He sends his son. And Jesus came and entered our cave. For us. I mean, talk about disorientation. Jesus willingly lost absolutely everything. The Bible says that Jesus, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. Absolute disorientation. God became a man, and he enters the world not as a king, not as an emperor, not as a president, not as a CEO, not as a five-star general, but as a fetus conceived out of wedlock and born in a barn to a poor Jewish carpenter and his peasant wife. And here is Jesus, the all-knowing, everywhere-present, all-powerful second person of the Trinity. Suddenly, he's floating in his mother's womb, stretching against the walls of, of her uterus. And when he's born, Mary changes God's diapers. And the Almighty learns to walk 
He gets tired and hungry. And now he's living with people he created in all their brokenness and sin. That is extreme disorientation. But the cave gets darker and goes deeper. The Bible says Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to death. Here's the creator, the sustainer, the source of life, the one who breathed life into each and every one of our lives, who sustains our lives every second of every day, and now he steps down to stand face to face with the power of death. And he says, Jesus says, King Jesus says, with all the confidence and all the authority of God, okay, this time you win. This time. And the God of life is swallowed up by death. But the the cave gets darker. Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. The cross was reserved for the vilest of all criminals, those whose society deemed to be the scum of the earth. And there on the cross, the Father poured out on Jesus the wrath of eternal judgment. What in the world is going on? The universe has been flipped upside down. The holy, perfect Son experiences the eternal judgment of the Father. That is cosmic disorientation. And then there's solitude. Crucified, dead, buried. And they placed him in an actual cave and sealed it with a large stone. Why did Jesus enter our cave? Why did he suffer and die on the cross? Just to be, you know, a good example of what it's like to to live a sacrificial life of love? It's got to be more than that. And it is. He did that to save us. To lead us out of the greater cave of death and evil and eternal judgment. The wrong king is on the throne and the only way to overthrow him was to storm the gates of hell. And so he did it so our sin could be forgiven so that we could be clothed in his righteousness. All out of sheer grace. Pure grace. Listen to the psalm again. He says, bring me out of prison that I may give thanks to your name. The righteous will surround me for you will deal bountifully with me. And on the third day, God answered that prayer. He set Jesus free, raised him from the dead, and gave him and all who gather around him a completely new direction. That's the first thing we learned. Jesus endured our cave to lead us out. And the second is this. In this very moment, right, even right here and right now, as, as, as we're all reflecting on the scriptures here, even now, Jesus is gathering a band of devoted followers. When you realize that the Bible is not primarily about us, but primarily about Jesus, then you realize that in this story, we aren't primarily David, but we are the ragtag band of followers that Jesus is gathering around him. 
We are the righteous of Psalm 142, not righteous in and of ourselves, but righteous in Jesus. And he dies our death so that we can be forgiven of our sin. He lives our life so that we can get his righteous record. So how do you become one of these devoted men or women of the king? Two things. First, you acknowledge that the wrong king is on the throne. Like those who gather in the cave, you recognize that you are, in fact, in distress, in debt, and discontented. And you become convinced that the, the way of the world, the status quo, is, is wrong, that things are not the way they ought to be, that the world is broken. Racism, war, injustice, oppression, children starving, lives being snuffed out even before they are born, schoolyard massacres, families living on the street, the exploitation of women through prostitution and pornography, pollution, AIDS, greed and business, greed and government, the degradation of bondage of people through substance abuse. In your heart, you know the status quo is wrong. We long for justice, but we see rapists go free on technicalities. We long for beauty, but it seems like everything around us is decaying. We long to love and be loved, but relationships don't last. Even the best marriages here, someday one of you will stand alone at the graveside. And you know that this is not the way it's supposed to be. I mean even if you don't believe in God right now. You know it's wrong, and you know why? Because the God in whom you don't believe has created you in his image and has written eternity on your heart. And so you know, deep down, you know that there is more to life than what we are experiencing right here, right now. And the righteous who Jesus is gathering around him are those who acknowledge that the status quo is wrong, who acknowledge that the world is screwed up because the wrong king is on the throne. But secondly, you believe that Jesus is the right king, the true king. You believe that, that because of him, a new day, a new kingdom is dawning. The world's days are numbers, and it's numbered, and it's not always visible, but this new kingdom, this new world is emerging. And when the rightful king is on the throne, everything will be the way it was meant to be. You know, when Jesus began his ministry, he came preaching the kingdom, healing the sick, casting out demons, raising the dead, right? Jesus himself, his life, his ministry, death on the cross, resurrection from the dead. Jesus himself is the strongest argument that a new kingdom is dawning. The days of the evil king are numbered. A new king and kingdom of grace is poised. And in the meantime, even right here, right now, right where you are sitting, Jesus is shaping us into mighty men and women. 
not mighty with a bow, not mighty with a sword, not mighty with a spear, but, but mighty in, in suffering. Mighty in, in loving the poor. Mighty in, in, in loving the needy. Mighty in loving the unlovable. Mighty in doing uh, what's right in the eyes of God, even when it costs us so much. He is weaving us into his very own likeness. And that includes the knotted, messed up thread as well as the beautiful gold and silver. It includes both mountaintops and always caves. But I want to tell you this morning that even in the cave, you can know that he is with you. He has not deserted you, and he never will desert you. He is not punishing you because your sin has already been punished in Jesus on the cross, and he will. He makes this promise. He will use your cave experience for good, and he will press you closer to him, and he will weave your life into something beautiful, and you can know that he will bring you through not only this cave, but the greater cave evil and death will not triumph over us. <laughs> One day you will be raised and you will rule with your king in his kingdom of grace forever and ever and everything will be as it should be. You know, Whenever I go see a, a, a movie like Hacksaw Ridge or something like that, and it says this is based on a true story, there's something that kind of hits me right here, makes me appreciate it uh, more, you know? The gospel is, is not based on a true story. It is the truest of all stories. And my hope is that it gets us right here, that it's not just some 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 theory or, or, or some good ideas to talk about, but it becomes, becomes real to us in our life right here, right now, now, so it stirs up a love and a loyalty to King Jesus and his kingdom. There really is a king who is worthy of the throne, and he has been sprung from death's prison. He is alive and well, and now he is gathering around him a loyal band of followers who will give their lives in service to him and his kingdom so that one day everything that has been lost, everything that has fallen apart, everything that has been broken will be put back together and renewed. Until that day, realize that life is not a constant soaring from mountaintop to mountaintop. It also includes dark, damp, and desperately lonely caves. But it is also where our king does some of his most important work. Are you in a cave right now? If you aren't right now, you will be. It's just a matter of time. And you know that. And when you are, when you find yourself in that cave, then know this. Your loving Heavenly Father is with you. Gather around Him. Claim Him as your leader. Look to Him and He will bring you out. 
and he will use you for his glory and the good of others. Amen? Would you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, um, on behalf of um, our church family, I am asking you, by your spirit and through the power of the gospel, that you would do a transforming work in our hearts right here and right now. God, I, I pray that you would open our eyes to our, our desperate need for you. And God, if, if we don't see our desperate need for you, I pray that by your mercy, you would remove our crutches, the things that we're looking to to prop us up. God, I pray that you would give us a confidence in you that leads to a humility in us. God, we thank you that your kindness leads us to uh, repentance. And that you don't just wipe our slate clean, but you fill it with the righteousness of Christ and give us credit for that. Make that real, the truest of all stories. Make, make that real to us. Stir up a, a, a loyalty in us to you and your kingdom. Make us more like Jesus, who showed us so much grace. And God, may we be built up in the knowledge that, and the promise that you gave to us that you who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it. And so God, we, we are here to express our desperation for you. Our need for you to transform our hearts and lives by, by making it more real to us that Jesus lived for us, died for us, raised from the dead for us to give us new life. You placed a calling on our life to glorify you and, and to enjoy you. So God, I pray if there is anybody here that has not started a relationship with you, that, that you would bless them with the gift of faith, that you would bless them with the gift of, of courage to, to follow you. To let go of everything else and to follow you. And use us to be an encouragement to them as, as we also need to just trust you and you alone. God, increase our faith in you simply because uh, we are looking to you, the author and the perfecter of our faith. We pray this in your name.